This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. A gentle reminder of our special offer on our new subscription service, Intelligence Squared Plus. Yes, especially for those of you who don't live in London, you now have the opportunity to take part, vote and even ask questions in our live debates and discussions. Just next week, we'll be hosting an online event with Rutger Bregman, who will be speaking to Helen Lewis about human kindness in a frightened world. We'll also be hosting Howard Jacobson, who many of you might remember from our debate on Jeremy Corbyn a few years ago, who will be taking part in our new podcast series called Touchstones with the broadcaster Razia Iqbal. So lots on the horizon, including a big debate on cancel culture and whether it's a threat to our freedoms. And you can find out information about all those events and subscribe today with a special 20% off discount using the code PODCAST. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, PODCAST. And now on to this week's episode. We were delighted to be joined this week by Ivana Bartoletti to discuss her new book, An Artificial Revolution, on power, politics and AI. And she spoke to Yasmin Abdelmajid, who many of you will know as a previous host on Intelligence Squared events, and we hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Abdelmajid, broadcaster and writer and recovering engineer, and I'm excited, I'm super excited actually, to be here with Ivana Bartoletti, the Technical Director of Privacy at Deloitte, Woman of the Year in 2019 at the Cybersecurity Awards, the co-founder of Women Leading in AI Network, and also the author of the new book, An Artificial Revolution on Power, Politics and AI. Welcome, Ivana. How are you this morning? Hi, thank you so much. And really, really pleased to be here with you today. Well, firstly, I I just wanted to say I really, really enjoyed reading the book. I think it's a punchy and a, a sort of a punchy look into these themes of power politics and AI. And especially at the moment, like we've got the Black Lives Matter protests, which have sort of swept the United States and across the world. And one of the conversations that come have 
come out of the protests is around AI and policing and facial recognition technology and police departments. And I think some of the themes that you bring out in the book, which we'll discuss today, sort of cut across so many of the conversations that are happening globally. But I guess my first question is, why did you decide to write this book? Well, um, thank you. So I think my main issue was, has been over the last few years, the realisation that I am, yes, very passionate about technology. I am very passionate about AI, I think is great. But also, I just want people to understand that if we do not get things right, then we are going to find so many problems moving forward. And I think what you just mentioned about artificial intelligence in the space of facial recognition is really, really important. And in fact, one of the key points that I really wanted to make in the book was really about saying to people, hey, be careful. When we talk about AI and when we talk about a lot of data which AI needs in order to train the algorithms, data is nothing neutral. Data represents the hierarchies that we've seen in society right now. Therefore, we have to be really, really careful. We can't just say, well, you know, technology is great. We're just going to use it. We really have to think carefully and really imagine how we can have technology that adapts to us and to the values that we want to safeguard rather than just adapting, us adapting to technology, which I feel that is something that to an extent is happening. And, you know, what's happening now that you mentioned on BLM is, is, you know, it's a clear demonstration of that. Facial recognition, I feel, is a real danger if we are not careful about it. Mm. And so let's start with one of the things that you said right at the beginning of the book. You say AI is political and it's gendered and, you know, arguably also it's racialized. What what does that mean for people? To, what does it mean for them to understand that AI is political and gendered? That's a great question. So when we think about AI, a lot of people immediately will think about Terminator. They will think about something like robots and major technologies totally disrupting the space that we live in. The reality is not really like that. The reality is that the two main areas where we've seen a lot of AI development over the last few years have been computing advertising and surveillance. This is not to say that we haven't seen fantastic developments in medicine, in health. We have, and there is fantastic stuff happening to detect diseases way before they manifest. But we've seen a lot happening in this space, which is surveillance and computing advertising. Surveillance is really about power. So surveillance is really about wrapping around control, wrapping it around those who are already very vulnerable. And we're seeing this with facial recognition. So with facial recognition, what we are seeing is a racialized technology that discriminates, doesn't recognize people of color. But let's be careful, even if we're able to create the most amazing facial recognition technique that does not discriminate, then even the deployment of facial recognition technology may be discriminating in itself. It's not just about the data. It's also about the technology in itself, which is never neutral. And when I say that there is power underpinning AI and there is gender imbalances underpinning AI, it's because AI needs a lot of data. Data is not neutral. Data represents the hierarchies and asymmetries in the world as it is now. So if we are not careful, we are just going to code 
all of these asymmetries, all of this power high di- uh, dynamics into the systems that we are creating. And it's not just about fixing the, the algorithm. It's not just about fixing AI. It's really looking at the technology in itself and really looking at how are we going to use it in a way which does not discriminate. And I think when I say it's gendered, it is because, as again, when we look at the world of data that is not neutral, it's not because when you decide that you want to create a data set, then you're going to choose some people and you're going to elevate them and put them into a data set. But by choosing some, you're also disregarding others. So whoever decides about data, and some people call this the politics of data classification, whoever decides what to collect and what not to collect, they are making a choice, which is a choice around power. So we've got to really understand the link between AI data and the power dynamics they're driving artificial intelligence right now. Oh, there's so much in what you said that I, I find fascinating and really and really want to unpack. And just off the back of what you said around classification, when I read in your book around the power of classification, it reminded me so much about how we think of race and how race was itself a form of classification that, you know, colonial powers did back in the day when they were trying to, you know, create this idea of or formalized transatlantic slavery and so on. And in the same way that they made laws and legislations around, you know, this classification of people are like this and we're going to treat them this way. Similarly, that was reflected it seems there's a relationship or a parallel with the way that we think about classification of data now, which is why I was so curious to see another quote in your book, which says that data collection is in itself an act of choice. And this is an act of violence. So, and I think this, can you, again, can you unpack for, because I think many listeners will be like, how is collecting data an act of violence? Um, But I think it's really fascinating. So tell us more. Yeah, so I wanted to be a bit brutal there. <laughs> That's why I use the word data violence because every time, I don't know if you feel the same, but I do think that in the world we live in, there is some sort of mantra that data is great. You know, this is sort of mantra we say, well, you know, we're analysing data and we're going to do what data says as if there is some sort of lack of perspective lack of politics, lack of um, bias in the data in itself, as if data is this sort of, you know, this sort of uh, of, of machine of truth, because it takes a picture it of the world. has a mythical status almost, right? Yes. I mean, it's it's like data is there. They, we just follow the data, just follow the data. Mm-hmm. Um, politics has gone to the same direction. You know, we've, we've got algorithms replacing policy and, and, and all that. But let me, let me, let me focus on this. So there is this issue about sort of the, the sort of neutrality of data and this fact that, you know, data's got no perspective and therefore it can be trusted. And this is where the problem starts because it's not really like that. I mean, it's not really like that because decided as something that needs to be studied is a choice, yeah? So, for example, look how little we've been talking about endometriosis and how little we've known until a re- really recently. And that is because medicine has been dominated by men for centuries we haven't been able to really study heart attacks and heart diseases affecting women because all the data collecting collected about all this were in uh, uh, regarding men so we were not able to detect heart diseases regarding women women 
Caroline Cradopert in, in Invisible Women has done amazing work and really putting together a lot of information about visible women, how data about women wasn't uh, collected. But I want to move a little bit beyond this. So the concept of data neutrality is what we need to challenge. Because if we base our decision on data which represents the hierarchies and decision decisions made over centuries by who was in power and who has been power, then of course the outputs and what is going to come out of it is necessarily bias, biased. But there is another problem here, which is the fact that when we start using predictive technologies, which use the data that we have now and inform a policy or a decision around allocation of money, around a prediction, then what happens is that you are using historic data to construct the relationship between the past, the present and the future. This is what I call data violence. What I mean, Mm. for example, that if I live in my neighbour, I live in Hackney, right? And Hackney is a diverse borough. So let's say that I want, for example, to understand people who can be, I don't know, a risk or not pay bank payments or loans, whatever, I'm a bank. What happens is that historically, historically, some people, because of um, inequalities that are enshrined and, and, and built in in our society, may be more at risk of losing their jobs or being in jobs that are less secure and less safe. If you base the decisions around whether or not to give somebody a loan on historic data, what you're doing is you are perpetuating inequalities, obviously. You're keeping people out of a loan, for example. But what you're also doing is that you are using data which is the product of history and inequality, historic inequalities, to construct the relationship with the future. And to an extent, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So when I say data violence, it's because I feel very strongly that the decision around whether to collect or not to collect data is really not neutral at all. And what you do with it and the technology that that can inform can have really devastated consequences on on society and in particular on the most vulnerable. I think, you know, what's happening in the US and not just in the US, all across the world, this really shows that we can, the risks with with all this and, and how we have to be really careful that this technology and this deployment of technologies and this sort of use of, of, of data collection to to make decisions around the individuals can be the cause of you know of can, can lead to perpetuating inequality and turning stereotypes into prejudice mm. it does it does bring to mind like you talked about the sanctity that the sanctity of data the idea that and as you just mentioned the idea that data has this sort of like it can tell us something that we can't see maybe but actually it is also and you speak of it not as a commodity but also but instead as capital you say data acts in a way that is different in the world and not just like 
it's not as straightforward as money it is capital that has different meaning right yeah and it, that that's really you know the, the reason why i said that is because a lot of time you may have heard i'm sure you have you know the data is the new oil and when i hear yes. that i feel really like no 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 we're not in that space because oil is a really interesting commodity which means that you use it and once you've used it you you can't use it again but with data you use it and you can keep using it forever and the accumulation of data is really what is driving a lot of innovations and and not just innovation but a lot of the geopolitics and geopolitics that we're seeing right now so if you look at the world you know you have we all been told that we have it, we are in a race global race and you have a system which is the chinese system where you have a data accumulation is is it's easy because they have a system which is based on sort of state having access to a lot of information and then in the US on the other end you have a system where there is less less privacy protections although things are changing there but the accumulation of data is is really what is driving at the moment we live in a in a situation where data is collected data about us is collected every single moment you know whether you touch your oyster card or you use your credit card to make a payment in the shop or whatever you browse the internet all this data about us is collected and collected and it forms a huge amount of capital that is in the hands of governments big corporations to 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 really trade on and and when i say data is capital it's because it's behaving as such if you look at what is happening for example in 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 some countries in africa where what you're seeing at the moment is real data colonization where you know you have these companies really training their algorithms in countries that are financially poorer but they are data rich and we are replicating the same dynamics that we've seen centuries ago and and decades ago and I'm and it's really important I think that we understand what is you know what data is all about because if we continue to see data as this sort of fantastic resource that can inform us and we need a lot of data we need more and more yes it, data is is important and there is no doubt that I will I worry about misuse of data as much as I worry for misuse of data because you know I don't want to you know miss opportunities but in order to do so we've really got to understand what we're talking about and what is the power of data and how we have to to act yeah and I think like there's this interesting question underneath that is like why are, are you asking people to think more about the the data they collect is it about asking whether or not you need to collect something in the first place is that a thought process you're encouraging people to consider That's an interesting question so everybody you know I think every time I I talk about these things people people think that I must be a fanatic of privacy you know and say I don't want to share anything with anybody you must be so careful when you're on the internet the reality is just couldn't be more different I mean I I'm I really I really do I really don't care about my personal data that much sorry I'm exaggerating but the reason why I'm saying this is because I I do believe that there is nothing more collective in terms of public value than a piece of personal information what I'm 
That's interesting. Yeah, tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? Because you know we've seen. I mean, I think I think the COVID nineteen pandemic we're in have really shown this. You know, the fact that if you and I just meet up and I, you don't know if I've got COVID or not, and we talk for ten minutes, you may get it. So the reason why I'm saying this is because this pandemic has demonstrated that we are very much interdependent and interconnected. And if we have information about each other and we use it for the common good, i.e. not to, because we don't want the pandemic to spread and to kill even more people, then, you know, the, the value of, of personal data is because of, of what it gives uh, access to. More data we have about the pandemic and the effect it has on individuals, the more we can understand it, the more we can we can find a vaccine and the more we can find solutions to tackle this, this, this disease. But the problem is, where is this data? Where does this data go? And who is handling it? And what is the purpose we're doing this for? So... I, I'll ask you a question, myself, but, but and to everybody listening, but the question is, I have no problem in my data being used for medical research and purposes, for as long as I know that that is why it's used. But there are limits. There are um, issues that we need to understand about how we're going to govern things. So if data is a collective public good and it's a common good and we want to use it for the sort of the good of society, then what I'm after is, okay, how are we going to make this happen? You know, how are we going to, and how compatible is that with the use of data that we're favouring at the moment? We're seeing a little, a lot at the moment, which is around building synthetic personalities about us, which, you know, heart following us and browsing activities to sell even more, you know, a pair of shoes or, or, on a more dangerous side to tell us what to like, what to like, and even what to vote for. In my book, I say, you know, that I worry about algorithms that are able to hack into our weaknesses and and really understand a lot of our, our intimate life because of, of correlations and patterns. This is what I worry about. What I worry about mm. is, okay, we've got this massive resource, which is information about one another. What is the way that we can use this for the common good? And what are the limits for to, to, to the data harvesting and data extraction and data manipulation that has become the dominant trait of, of our digital life? And no, not, not only the digital life. And what does that what does that world look like? Does it is it a world where we as individuals have more control over our data? Is it about government regulation, which I know you talk about? What what, what does it look like for you? It's a mix of things, isn't it? So, first of all, I think we have to break the barrier to understand between digital and non digital life, and this is because. So we live somewhere in the middle all the time, you know, like you and I are speaking on, on a, on a, in a sort of COVID era. So we're not sitting next to each other. We're using computers. We're using technologies. And, you know, now more than ever, we're realizing how, you know, we are always in and out the digital world. There is room for, for, I think, government intervention in the sense that we really need to understand what are the harms generated by this new technology and are the laws that we have in place, are they sufficient to protect and safeguard us from all this? You know, so the, the, just, to, just to be clear, when I talk about the harms, I talk about three things. One is 
the allocation. So the fact that you are locked out of a service, of a bank loan, a access to housing, because all these decisions are made by automated systems. In the US, you can be, uh, you can, an algorithm, a machine is, is deciding whether you can go to jail or you go to jail or not. So allocation harm means that you get it right and you get lo- you get it wrong and, and you get locked out of a particular service. The second harm is representational, which is that if you continue to advertise jobs that pay less and you continue to advertise jobs that pay less to women because historically women get paid less, then you are perpetuating bias. You are perpetuating stereotypes. So that's the rep- what I call representational harm. And the third one is correlation. Is where, you know, with this data, you can find, with these machines, you can find correlations between things, things that are not even noticeable. But sometimes these correlations, they do not mean that there is a cause and effect relationship between things. So sometimes things get so mixed up that you can, you can really make huge mistakes out of it. So the issue is, Probably we do need governance around it and probably we really need to understand about, uh, we need to understand how we're going to regulate all this, this ecosystem. Do we use things like in the pharmaceutical sector when there is a sort of licensing agency? What is the innovation regulation ecosystem that allows, you know, us to still innovate and do it properly, but, you know, but, but not sort of end up discriminating, automated unfairness and automated inequality, basically. There is a role, I think, for individuals, I think, which is in demanding more transparency. And what I mean about transparency, I don't mean that, you know, you go on, you use a particular a particular machine that, that makes a decision about you or a particular artificial intelligence system. Doesn't mean that you have to go into the system, understand it, because it's impossible. But what I mean about transparency is I want transparency around what is the impact on communities, on the environment, on jobs of a particular system in piece of innovation that we are there to, to we're there to introduce. So I think there's two elements really sort of we need citizens to demand more transparency, we need clearer governance and regulation around all this. And I also think we need to really we need politics to really come to terms a little bit more with all this. You know, when I say in my book I say I need politics back in the driving seat. And the reason is because you know, it's it's great to have all these fantastic companies doing really amazing things. But I really would like to see where we're going. I really would like to see, you know, what is the reason why we're using a particular piece of technology. And sometimes it feels that we're using a particular piece of tech because it's glamorous and fantastic rather than because it's, it's really there to serve a particular purpose. And I think, you know, we are... We have at the sort of watershed moment right now because with COVID-19, a lot of businesses are going to automate and digitize much more quickly. And and therefore, you know, we need to be to, to ensure that we are using technology for the best and for the common good and to harness really the value, the good values and get the most the best out of people. But I fear that, you know, we've seen a lot of good things happening happening over recent years, but we've also seen facial recognition being wrapped around people of colour in particular and black people. We've also seen Cambridge Analytica manipulating people votes. I mean, we've also seen the bed, 
the bad things. So this yeah. is the time, I think, it's to take action. It's a bag, isn't it? <laughs> it is, for sure, for sure. And, you know, what's happening in the US and, and with facial recognition, I mean, I'm a strong advocate that we really need a moratorium. We've got to stop this because we need clear boundaries about what we're going to use facial recognition for. If if we're using facial recognition to unlock my phone, that's fine. Go ahead with it. That I have no problem. But if you're using facial recognition to really... Uh, wrap surveillance around certain neighborhoods or if you're using facial recognition to police the way that we inhabit our public spaces then I'm saying no thank you because I don't think that is necessary and therefore I would like really to to see a little bit more of a stop and in fact you know the the, the, the crazy things Jasmine is that the big companies they they are saying yes we want a moratorium we don't want to invest in company that use facial recognition, for example, just to do to, to technique, just to sell it to the police. You know, we've seen it with Amazon. We've seen it with IBM. They've taken a stance, you know, for as limited as it could be, but they have taken side. So I think now it's for politics to, to, to really catch up and say, OK, let's make some ground rules about this. It is fascinating to see politics come into it. And now it's time for a quick break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. So Ivana, one of the things that I found really interesting in your analysis of the, the sort of the AI sector was you talked about the reshaping of labor and you talked about all these ghost workers, which I hadn't actually realized there were so many. And I didn't realize there was such a big part of training these machine learning algorithms. Can you tell us a bit more about that? And also the feminist lens on that? Yes. I mean, isn't that interesting? I mean, I didn't know much about it either. Because I, 
don't know, when, when people think about AI, don't you think about the jobs in Silicon Valley? 100%, yeah. You think about Mark Zuckerberg, you know, the, 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 the big ones, you know, you think about the sort of big villas in, uh, <laughs> in, uh, in Silicon Mellow Park and Silicon Valleys and, and the rich ones. But in reality, this is also, you know, this is why, uh, what I mean about transparency of AI as well. You know, we need to know, the public needs to know about all these things. So there is a lot of invisible labour behind the training of algorithms. So if you, so just to be very, very clear and simple, if you want to train a machine so that a machine spots if there is, I don't know, a problem with your knee, right? They want to see if, if there is some, some, some problem with the ligament. So the way that that would work is that they would study millions and millions of image, images of knees they would be injected into this data, would be feeding, you know, the system. And the machine would be trained to recognise a difference in where the image looks different. So when we talk about the fantastic potential of artificial intelligence in radiography, which is something I'm very passionate about because, you know, for reasons of health, you know, when we talk about this, then behind a model which is able to recognise and spot if there is a change in your scan image, there has been somebody who has been training their models. The same happens with Facebook. And if you think about spotting um, online harms and images of violence, pedophilia, terrorism, in order for a machine learning algorithm to recognise whether an image or a video is a video of terrorism or pedophilia or self-harm, somebody will have looked at thousands and thousands of these images to train the machine to recognise it. These people who do this, they are not the 300,000 a year employees. These people are less paid, much less paid, but they also suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder because they have to look at terrible image, images day in, day out. The research I've seen on people training machines in the healthcare sector are really interesting because, once again, ex- they expose sort of the, the geopolitical dimensions of our world, you know, where you have factories in India and offices in India where people are looking at these machines day in, day out and feeding this data. So looking at these photos, for example, of, of polyps or ligaments, or and they look at all these machines, all these photos, ingest them in, into the system. And these people working at a fraction of a salary of, you know, the, the people in, in West world would be paid but in India, they are making their way out of poverty. So, mm. so there's, you know, all this really got me thinking a lot, you know, but this is what's happening. So this is the reality behind, you know, the, the labour. You know, this is how labour is. And, and I really wanted to point that out because every time we say, oh, you know, AI is going to destroy a lot of jobs, but also AI is going to create a lot. Yes, it is perhaps, but when we talk about AI in labour, let's not think that the only jobs are the very, the top ones, the, the top coders and the top engineers, because there is a lot of, of work underpinning 
underpinning all this. And it's not just work, it's also environmental consequences. The Kate Crawford from New York University was a, an amazing sort of uh, academic in this area. She was um, recently telling us about um, how they, the, the work that she's done, a two-year research, you know, to trace Amazon Echo, you know, which is the, the, the machine that we a lot of people have got in their house. So it took two years to investigate the hidden cost, from the hidden cost of labours, from the hidden cost of materials. So, you know, there are three things underpinning a, a technological product. Data, labour and energy. And and people don't really know that behind a piece of, of innovation that we like so much because it makes our life easier, apparently, our life easier, people don't know that behind that system there is a lot of labour, and sometimes it's not just the labour of a Silicon Valley or of a London-run sort of firm, but there is also a lot of data and there is also a lot of energy with sometimes a very devastating impact on the environment. So when I, when I say, you know, we need transparency around artificial intelligence and technology, that's what I mean. People need to know the real cost. People need mm. to know in order for us to make it, to, to be able to, to navigate the trade-off trade off and say, do we really want this? I want to know the real cost underpinning a particular product. What is the real cost? It's just the £80, £90, but what is it on the environment? What is on labour? What is on the data that, that uh, has been used? So that we're able to make more informed decisions. Uh, yes, it is about making more informed decisions. It's also about, also about how to invest in, in, in products that are more ethical and it's also about uh, putting the right money from a research perspective in the right directions, you know, so because there is no doubt, I mean all, a lot of these products, they're good they, they, they we enjoy them but, you know, we really need to understand the hidden costs behind them and I found this journey into, into what is behind an AI product really fascinating And then, I mean, like you asked this question like, is it worth it? And I thought that that was like a really interesting question and it feeds into another thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is your proposing of an anti-AI movement in the same way that there was an anti-nuclear movement, a movement that recognizes that AI provides some value, but also perhaps needs more restrictions in a similar way to, to nuclear energy. I mean, is this something that you'd like to see a political movement around? Well, I am surprised. I mean, I, I wrote this because, you know, I wrote this, this thing about anti-AI movement because I was surprised that there was no anti-AI movement. And, I mean, I like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I like tech. I'm, I'm, I'm very much, you know, a tech-focused individual. I just want tech to work for everybody. <laughs> I don't want tech to make our life worse. I'm, I'm very focused and passionate about it. But I, I was surprised. I was saying, why don't we have you know, an anti-AI movement. Why don't we have, and I don't mean it in a Luddite, you know, fashion. I mean it in, as, you know, from an environmental perspective. From a, And then I realised, yes, we don't, because we don't know about the hidden costs that I was talking to you about just a minute ago. You know, they don't. we don't know about, we see the end product, but we don't know about the hidden cost of labour, data and energy behind that particular product. And we don't know the dangers, you know, we don't know some of the things that we've been accustomed to because of how wild our digital ecosystem has been able to grow, you know. So, you know, to an extent, you know, we've had the Cambridge Analytical scandal 
which has brought to light the reality of an architecture of persuasion, which is our digital ecosystem, where it's, you know, algorithms are there to reward posts and videos that are more divisive rather than more empathic, you know. So, so, that, so this architecture of persuasion, which is our online ecosystem, we've grown so accustomed to that that to an extent, you know, yes, privacy has become a bigger issue, but at the same time, because there are no alternatives out there, we don't really mind that much, you know. But it's not that we don't mind because we don't believe in it. It's just because... There is no real alternative to it. Mm. Even legislation which I fought for, like the General Data Protection Regulation, you know, people find it a pain. And I understand that because if you have to navigate and browse the internet and every two seconds you have to say, this is a privacy notice, read it. And the language is impossible. It stops you from having a really interesting and nice experience online because you have to click buttons every four seconds. The consent model that, you know, we've built our digital ecosystem through is is probably not viable anymore, especially as we navigate constantly through online and offline. So Wait, that's really so. How would you flip it? Like, what is if consent isn't the way to go about it online? If you don't, if if it's not about us clicking a button every five minutes or every four seconds, what does it look like? It does look well. There are two main things. And, and first of all, we need to if we want to consent is is not to be ditched altogether, but it has to. We have to force more dynamic and interesting and in, in an easier way to for people to to express an opinion. But also we have to find new ways, I think, and, and new ways for me and related to new intermediaries. So, for example, in particular in some areas um, like um, like health or I would like a system where there are intermediaries administering your access on, on your behalf. You know, so you have data trust or data, even data cooperatives, you know, where, you know, there are administrators. Like a bank almost. Or like a PayPal or escrow or something like that. I mean, it could be something like a data trust, or it could be even a cooperative. You know, we say, okay, this is this is the data. I sign a contract with what I want and what I don't want, and these people administer the data on my behalf. You know, if in health, could be quite interesting. But for as much for the digital ecosystem, then of course, what I would very much like is is privacy to be there by default. You know, so everything is is so I have to be convinced of the the, the value of 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 opting in rather than having to opt out. <laughs> so, and a lot of this is happening thanks to the, to the general data protection regulation, but I feel it's still not enough because um, still there, are, you know, there, there, there is more that needs to be done. But going back to the anti-I movement, I just wanted to say one thing to you that, that I think it's... So I've been asking myself, why with all this, and we've got evidence that, you know, the digital ecosystem has grown wild, that we've seen some amazing things, but also some very dangerous. And, and why don't we have a movement that says, well, actually, we don't want this thing. And, and you know, especially when it comes to democratic values, you know, if, if, if algorithms are used to... For you to 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 serve you ads and information that are based on your personality, then you and I may see different information. If you and I see different information, different facts about the world, then what are we supposed to talk about? And if we don't have the same information, what is democracy based on? So I'm I was surprised. I was saying, 
If I can understand the potential danger alongside the fantastic opportunities, why isn't there more to say, hold on a sec, stop, and let's create the right safeguards, the right frameworks, the right legislation around all this so we are able to, you know, really take the most of this technology, develop what we need to develop to improve our society, but we also we can also control the dangers. Mm, well, it sounds like there's a, a burgeoning movement and opportunity there. We are almost up. Or our time is almost up. And so I've got, I've got two last questions for you. The first is one that you say in your own book that you ask others, which is, how do you feel about AI? So it's, uh, first of all, it depends on what, you, what we mean by AI. I, ha- I mean, I'm lucky because I help organizations do the right thing. You know, so I... I work with people who want to get it right. You know, they do want to, to, they want to be trusted. And in order to be trusted, they really want to work hard to get the right things in place. So I feel that is, there is a lot of potential, especially sectors like the environment, especially to tackle climate change. But I really feel that we really need to focus on this really positive areas and move away from this sort of focus on on computing advertising and surveillance so i feel you know still optimistic that you know we can we can we can achieve what positive change with it but i really want to see more people talking about the opportunities but also the risks i guess the last question is maybe hopefully one where we can give people a sort of a, an action item uh, if you will, which is what do you want people to sort of like take away? What do you want people to, if there's one thing that, you know, if, if they're in a position of government policy or if they're, you know, just your everyday person living their life, what is the one thing that you kind of want them um, to take away? Totally. So what I want people to take away is that AI is not a robot. It's not, AI is not Terminator, but AI is with us already. And, 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 and we need to familiarize with the consequences of, of the, um, myth of, of sanctity of data. We need to familiarize with the, um, with the issue of, of how artificial intelligence can, can uh, automate inequality and poverty. And, and to do so, we really, uh, my main takeaway is, is really, these issues around AI and, and they need to, to be mastered by everybody. And AI is not just about technology. AI is about power, it's about politics, about relationships. So we can't be put off by the fact that we're talking about artificial intelligence and coding. There is, this is for everybody to talk about. Ivana Bartoletti, the author of An Artificial Revolution on Power, Politics and AI. A fantastic read. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Ivana. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks to you. Really enjoyed it. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – 
And we also use our cutting edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.